So what I will do to start is we'll um, just quickly read through First Timothy chapter 3. Um, I'll start at the end of verse 2 and we'll go right to uh, verse 7 and I'll just read that out loud for us. Um, so the, the first characteristic we're going to start with is able to teach. And in verse 3, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert. In fear, he become conceited and fall into the con- condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So the first thing I wanted to point out as a observation here is remember from last week that these, uh, although these are eldership requirements, they are also um, a list of things that the false teachers themselves were not doing with the congregation. And using this guideline can also be a tool now to help protect the church from apostasy. And I also wanted to help people today just get into the mindset that even if you're not running for eldership, you never will, and it's not on your mind, I still want you to approach all these characteristics as things that we can use to improve our walks with God. We all have the same um, goal and striving in mind is to be holy as our Father is holy. And so just because you may not be a leader, don't think that this does not apply to you. Um, so just keep that in mind as we're walking through the rest of these characteristics and, um, yeah, and, and we'll, uh, go through that. So the first characteristics we're going to pick up with is able to teach. So being able to teach does not mean you have to be a good public speaker. It does not mean you have to have a great vocabulary. And it also doesn't mean you have to teach or speak a message that your audience enjoys. In first, in uh, sorry, Second Corinthians eleven six, Paul himself admits he isn't a good speaker, but is very knowledgeable in God's word. But even I, if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. And in Second Timothy chapter four, verses three and four, um, we see here uh, Paul tells us what false teachers, what kind of message they bring. For the time will come when they will uh, not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So if this is what a teacher is not, then what does it mean to be able to teach? Well, I think there are three things we can look for Um, for someone that can uh, teach the Bible. The first thing, being able to teach is a spiritual gift given from God. So in Romans 12, verses 6 and 7, we see here that since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to proportion of his faith, if service, in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching. 
So this means that this gift must be bestowed to someone in order for them to be able to teach the word of God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 27 to 30, you can look that up on your own. It actually says there that not everyone has the same gift, which means that not everyone can be a teacher. So there's something unique about the gift of teaching that God gives. And it's not the same as being a good math teacher or a good coach. It is, it is a specific gift given from God for his word. The purpose is to equip the congregation for the work of service and building up the body of Christ. The second thing I think we can look for is they need to teach the Bible truthfully and accurately. 1 Timothy 6, chapter 6, verse 3, says that false teachers teach a different doctrine other than the words of Jesus Christ. So an opposite of that, that would mean the true teachers would teach the words of Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul instructs Timothy. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handing handling the word of truth. So not straying away from the teachings of Jesus and standing firm in what the Bible says, not watering it down or avoiding avoiding uncomfortable subjects. All scripture is inspired by God to be used for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. The third thing I think we can look for is they must be able to refute those that contradict the Bible. Titus 1.9 tells us this holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict so they must be able to teach god's worth words truly and be able to catch and deal with error now dealing with false teachings can sometimes lead to lost friendships rejection and strong ridicule and approaching the situation, approaching these types of situations with sensitivity and gentleness is key. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, is a really nice instruction there for this approach. It says, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservants must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correct, correcting those who are in opposition. So gentleness must be approached um, when dealing with false teaching. And standing up for God's word can come at a cost, but it's absolutely necessary. Now, I wanted to clarify that if you don't have the gift of teaching, it does not mean that you cannot disciple people or teach in another setting when it comes to God's word. This gift is strictly for the setting of the church and the, and the pastoring or leading of a church congregation and maintaining order. The next characteristic is not addicted to wine. And that starts in verse 3. 
This characteristic belongs to a person that does not practice a lifestyle of getting drunk, that would be not addicted. Now, from previous sermons done in our church regarding alcohol and other substances, we know that God has set a standard for an appropriate amount of consumption. Take, for example, 1 Timothy 5.23. Paul says to Timothy, No longer drink water excessively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So when we use this um, instruction here in 1 Timothy 3 of not being addicted to wine, he's not talking about abstaining completely from no wine ever. So the issue here is, is the addiction and lifestyle towards wine so some translations may say given to wine or just drunkard so if you were wondering now if you are someone is addicted to something and have you have to look at the behavior addiction becomes apparent in a person's behaviors when you remove the thing that they are addicted to example if someone was to settle down after a long day of working and couldn't have their wine or beer and got emotionally upset about it, including anger or any emotional reaction that isn't appropriate to this situation, they may have a hold with that substance. Even if someone was to put themselves or their, or their family in a bad financial position to acquire the substance or thing or even activity, it doesn't always have to be a thing. It could even be something like an activity. Or another classic example um, that's very popular in our culture is uh, your morning coffee. So there's a, a, a popular saying that goes around. It says, don't talk to me until my first coffee. Um, it's, it sounds funny at first, but the uh, the implication of that, though, is that I will not be treating you very nicely until I get my coffee. And uh, again, and that in itself already tells us that this uh, emotional attachment um, to, the, um, to the coffee. And uh, another thing I was even thinking about um, this morning too was um, something I've been working through myself as we're working through these, these characteristics. Um, I just called it, it like emotional eating. So I found that, especially now being isolated, and I found that um, when things got stressful a little bit with money or just work and all this stuff, like all I wanted to do was have like a big juicy cheeseburger or um, just something like just dripping with grease or whatever. Just it's what I wanted because I subconsciously thought I'd feel better and it really helped me see just that attach emotional attachment to that um and it's something that you know because you have to eat or you know have you know consume things on a daily basis is something that you know i have to think about quite often um and so that's just an ex- another example of just something you can think about in your own life that you may have this emotional attachment to that um is something that may be mastering you to some degree. Um, I think Paul has a, a really nice um, approach that he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. And all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. 
See, the things on this earth are not to master us. They are not to hold us emotionally in this bondage and not allow us to respond to people or to God um, in an inappropriate way. Jesus is to be our only master. So next on our list is not being pugnacious. So here the word pugnacious means violent. So to not be pugnacious would be to not be violent. So someone here, if you were being violent, would be in this particular way, is talking about a physical harmful way or someone that um, strikes blows, um, that bully personality that um, it's not talking about verbal abuse per se. It's more talking about physical harm. <coughs> a, uh, a verse that uses this particular word from First Timothy is in Ezekiel 18.10. It says, then he may have a violent son who sheds blood, who does any of these things to a brother. So violence is not the way Christ wants his church to function. Physically harming someone to solve a conflict is far from showing Christ's love. So being a violent person is not a part of church leadership. And I think we would all agree with that. So next, if you're not being violent, he, we are instead asked to be gentle when we deal with conflict as leaders. Another way to put it is being patient, forgiving, reasonable, or someone that easily pardons a person's failure. Um, going back to Second uh, Timothy um, chapter 2, verse 23 and 25, which what we read before, Again, he talks about being gentle, gentleness and correction with those that are in opposition. This word gentle is also used in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 when Paul is describing his behavior towards the church in Ephesus. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children. So I thought this was an interesting uh, verse. It, I think Paul Paul's image of a mother tenderly caring for her child really helps paint a nice picture of gentle. And I think anyone who is a parent can think back and remember how it felt to care for your newborn child. You know, you have this precious little life that's so dependent upon you to survive and you would do anything to help nurture and grow this child. And so it's a really interesting way to think about uh, a leader approaching um, the congregation in a way that um, that they they need the guidance and the nurturing and the and the tender care that a mother would for children. Next is uncontentious. So uncontentious means to be quarrelsome, or sorry, uncontentious means to not be quarrelsome or argumentative. So instead of pugnation being violent and physically hurting, uncontentious is more um, not being verbally argumentative and looking for a fight. This person um, 
is actually seeking to be a peacekeeper and to um, not start arguments. But it also doesn't mean that they bend on truth. Um, it's all it's the way that they approach truth and how they get to the truth that matters. And I think First Peter chapter three verse fifteen um, is a nice approach to this. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So it's not saying we don't speak the truth when it gets difficult. It's saying this person gets to the truth with gentleness and reverence. And uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, I'll read this to you. It actually, the uh, false teachers really struggled with this. It says in there, he is conceited, understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions. So that's what these false teachers were doing. It's creating a lot of verbal uh, issues there as well. So as I looked for further ways this word was used, I found an interesting imagery that some of the men may um, connect with more. Um, it's in Proverbs twenty-seven fifteen. Um, it says here, a constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. So contentious again, meaning this woman would be constantly looking for a fight and being very argumentative. Now, I know none of the wives in Genesis house are like this, so it's very good. So very thankful for that. So that's good. So next is um, free from the love of money. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And this makes sense considering what Jesus said in Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. See the false teachers again in first Timothy six, verse five, they were struggling with the love of money. It says there that they actually viewed godliness as a means of gain. So how do we know if someone is struggling with the love of money? Well, a question I think you can ask yourself or other people is, how do they handle their money in relationship to God and others? Are they using their money to further God's kingdom or their own? So if our goal is to further God's kingdom, then how do we further God's kingdom with our money? Well, I think there are three categories in which we can further God's kingdom. Number one is by giving to those that are spiritually investing into you. Now, this can be a pastor if you belong to a church or um, this if you don't belong to a church, this could be someone that's meeting with you and discipling you and helping you grow and learn more about Jesus and his word as they spend more time with you on a weekly basis. Number two is supporting missionaries or other evangelists that are sharing the gospel and making disciples. And number three 
is sharing your money and possessions with people that are not connected to God in order to open doors to conversations or build relationships with the purpose of sharing the gospel. So we have to remember that it's God's money, not our own. And we are stewards of what he provides us. So building his kingdom with his money is our goal, not ours. Paul also gives further instruction in um, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 and 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who riches supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. So the thing I like about this verse is it doesn't mean that we are not allowed to have wealth or be rich, but being generous to God and other people with your wealth and your money shows your freedom from the wealth. I want to give you two examples now. One person that's still attached to their wealth and their possessions in the Bible and one who is not. So first one. Is Luke 18, verses 22 and 23. We see here is the rich young ruler. And if you remember the story, he asked Jesus how he can inherit eternal life. And this is Jesus' response. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, He became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So the rich young ruler was, at least what we know here, was not inclined to part from his earthly possessions. He was still very attached to the love of of his money. Now... You may be thinking to yourself as you walk through your life and, and the things that you do that, that you are free from money and, it, and it's very possible that you are. And I thought about this a lot in my own life this week and um, um, there's definitely, um, I would say I'm feel, I feel very free from the love of money and, um, but there was one verse that really challenged the level of that to the maximum, most extreme point that I think you could get to when this idea of being free from money. And it's in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. Now these people were being persecuted. And it says there, for you showed sympathy to to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So these, these people knew they had a better possession than the earthly one that they were giving up. Now, I don't know about you, but giving up your home would be a very, very difficult thing. Um, especially with them, it's, it describes them as them joyfully giving this up. Um, and it's a very extreme side of being free from the love of money. But I thought it was a very interesting um, thing to think about. And it doesn't mean that you have to be at that exact place to be free from the love of money because expressing your generosity to God and others shows us your freedom from money. 
But I think it's also um, a, a good place to remind yourself and keep your heart in the right place when it comes to this possession and wealth is this, this verse here. And just always keep this in your mind and your heart to, to try and make sure you're in the right place at all times. So again, just to clarify, being generous to God in the ways we talked about and others expresses your freedom from money. So next in verse four, we have managing your household well. So manage in itself means to rule over, govern, or take care of. The way one manages their home life shows how they will manage the church. And we see that in verse five. So how do we know if someone is managing their household well? Now, I understand there will always be preferences involved with everyone's family, but preferences are not what I'm talking about. Most of us, I think, would agree that there are some important, there are some important things that a man can express to show that he's managing his house and his family well. One of the categories would be finances. Does he have his finances under control? So does he pay attention to them? Does he keep track of them? Does he understand what's going in and out of his bank account? Another one would be if you're married, do you communicate these things with your wife? Are you completely transparent with your wife on what what you're spending? Do you converse about um, purchases that you're making? Um, You know, just this week I was involved in a group chat that I heard uh, one of my friends said he spent a bunch of money on this random thing. And he says in the chat, don't tell my wife. And um, it's it's a sad reality, but that that's where people, a lot of people are at with their finances is it's very hidden. Um, does this person make appropriate purchases that consider the family's needs and not just their own? I know sometimes... Um, when you're working so hard and you're and you're making all this money, you get this sort of sense of entitlement that because I've worked so hard, I deserve to buy this thing for me. Like I I deserve this, um, but really we're we are to put our family above our our own interests. Is his family living within God's financial guidelines and provisions, like living within your means? Are you carrying no consumer debt? Um, sometimes it's very easy when we have, um, a lack of immediate gratification. We feel like we need to buy this stuff immediately right now because we can just borrow it. And also if, if this person is able, is he working to provide for his family? In first Timothy five, eight, it actually says, if you are not providing for your family, you're better off, no better off than an unbeliever. So next, um, how does the person deal with sin in their home? Does this person correct sin with God's truth using the Bible or using their own preferences? Does he approach correcting with gentleness and forgiveness? Like we read in first in second Timothy chapter two, 23 and 25 is approaching correction with gentleness. Does he exercise consistent, appropriate discipline with his children? 
So expecting first-time obedience. Is he expressing self-sacrificial love and reconciliation involved with his discipline? See, how he takes care of sin in the home is very important to how he approaches sin in the church. Also, another category is respect and obedience. So do his family members trust in his guidance to make choices that are in their best interest? And would the outside world notice a difference in the way the family runs and how they behave in public, how they behave over someone's house? The other thing I wanted to point out that I thought was interesting at the end of verse four, he says, keeping your children under control with all dignity. So now approaching all of these aspects that we've talked about, finances, dealing with sin, respect. um, Does this person manage all of these aspects of his home with such a quality that he is worthy of honor and respect. And that's what I think he's talking about when he says with all dignity. Is he doing it in a way that is worthy of honor and respect from his family? So again, we can see in verse 5 that the home life is a reflection on how this person will manage the church. And if he cannot call out sin and correct it within his children, he will struggle to do well within the church. Now, verse 6, we see here, the next one is not a new convert. So convert here translates into someone recently planted into the Christian church. So this is not a reference to someone's age, but more their spiritual maturity. See, Paul's concern here in 1 Timothy with the elders is that if you put someone in a leadership position before they're spiritually mature enough, You are setting the table for the new convert to fall into arrogance and pride, just as the devil did. So if you're like me, the first question I asked was, what did the devil do? Well, we see this in in Isaiah 14, 13. We get a nice, um, a really good picture of what was going on in the heart of, of the devil. So Isaiah 14, 13 to 14, it says, But you said in your heart, I will descend or I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So I call this the five I will statements. See, the devil wanted to rule and have authority and not only that, but surpass God and his kingdom. So Paul is warning against immature leadership because it sets the table for the same prideful thinking that the devil has. So as a church body, we need to be certain that a person is spiritually mature and humble enough to take on a leadership position. In um, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, he actually, Paul actually instructs them there to not put people in leadership positions too quickly because they actually will be responsible for their sin. So 
So it's important to be being patient with development. Developing leaders is, is very important. Time will tell us if the person is spiritually mature enough to step into that leadership role. And we need to make sure we do not speed that up for the fear of them falling into pride. So last one in verse 7 we have is a good reputation. So a good reputation with outsiders means there's an, an observable behavior that those outside the church can witness. So this does not mean they have to agree with you on spiritual and theological matters. You must have a life with no observable sin to the people outside the church, not including their preferences. And what I mean by that is, if your neighbor decides they don't like you because the the model of car you drive is not what we're talking about when we have a good uh, good reputation, we're talking more in the categories of sinful behavior, um, morally uh, towards your neighbor. Um, there's nothing you can do if your neighbor doesn't like your car because um, you may you, you hopefully you'd be making the decision for that car that's best for your family. So. Um, so Philippians 2.15 um, tells us um, our goal of being lights to the world so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So it is admitting there that we will be um, in the midst of these types of people. Um, we a lot of us don't get the the most of us, if not all of us, don't get the luxury of choosing who our neighbors are, who lives in our neighborhood, um, who we work with. Um, so we will be, we will be amongst these people, and uh, we are to be lights to them in this world. And Jesus also says a similar thing to the disciples. Um, in Matthew 5, verses 14 and 16. There he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So not only do we need to have a good reputation, but the works that we do should point to our father who is in heaven when we interact with them and they they should see this difference in us of what what we are shining onto them so keep in mind that if you are slandered so if your character is not if you do not have a good reputation with the outsiders if you are slandered because of your character then the church falls into the same witness and this is why this is so important to have a good reputation with the outsiders outside the church you represent the church and what god stands for it is it is very difficult if not impossible to teach people that do not belong to god that they need to be obedient to christ and live a life without sin if you if we ourselves are not living that life your lips have to match what your what your life is doing you can't say you believe one thing and do another um, I want to end with one verse that really changed my thought process on this idea of 
um, lips to life service. And that is in, um, you can go there if you'd like to. It's in John chapter 3. And this, this was impactful for me as far as just understanding the, the idea of definition of belief. So we have our classic, very popular um, saying in uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he who believes in him should, have, should not perish but have eternal life. So there we have this word believe, and you think, again, in my heart, if I just believe it, and I'm, I'm going to have eternal life, and this is great. And there's just a lot of ambiguity of what does that mean to believe in that? Is it one thing to just say this? How does this work? Well, if you go a little further and go to John chapter 3, verse 36, it really clarifies to me this, again, this picture of having a good reputation. It's in your integrity. It says there, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. So there's the same saying, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. See, what's interesting, he says, but he who does not obey. But at first he said, believe. So the, the interesting thing here is it shows us in John 3.36 that believe and obey are actually interchangeable. So and it's one thing to say you believe, but in understand, to understand that when you say I believe in this, it means you have to be living it. And so in order for us to be effective with the people outside the church and, and to gain their trust and understand that what we believe in is real, and, um, and we want to share that with them, we also have to be living that so that they can see the light that gets shone on. They can actually see what God has done in our life and what, what God can offer them. Um, so I just wanted to share that with you. That was really impactful for me when I first um, learned that. So that's all I have for these characteristics. Now, I understand that I went through a lot of them. So there's nine of them. And... It's, it is, um, I it feel like I probably didn't do total justice to all of them. So um, there may be some things that um, we can talk about more and and, and clarify if we need to. Uh, if you need any of the cross-references, I can give those to you as well. I don't have any um, lessons per se for you. I thought um, the characteristics in themselves were were good lessons plus you have the sheet that Andrew emailed you that give you a summary of each of the characteristics and so um yeah I'd be interested and excited to hear what impacted you and if there are certain characteristics that really stood out to you um and what your thoughts are